Take your seats. Class is in session. Welcome to the Friday Finishing School, where we believe that culture and an appreciation for the classical is foundational in a life lived in pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty. In this class, the only test is one of taste, and the only notes are the ones being played. But make no mistake, this sort of education will lift your spirits and elevate your everyday life in a way that a formal syllabus never could. This season, we're diving into the art, music, and poetry of the Baroque period, which began around the year 1600 and continued up until 1750. It was a time when the upper and middle classes became increasingly more comfortable, and art, though still strongly tied to religious influence, began to branch out to explore different forms and muses. Artistically, Baroque is an elaborate and dynamic style which is recognizable by its richness, drama, tension, and grandeur. It's here in history that we meet cultural giants such as Bach, Vivaldi, Caravaggio, Cervantes, and Shakespeare. It's a period of genius that persists to today. So let's begin. Today's lesson is on the iconic Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. Friedrich Handel was born on the 23rd of February, 1685, to Georg, aged 63, and Dorothea, aged 35. This was his father's second marriage. George had six half-siblings from his father's first marriage and two younger sisters from his marriage to Dorothea. The Handels were solidly middle class, but with connections to noble families. What they were not was musical. There is very little known about Handel's life in Germany, but we do know that his father was not impressed by his young son's very apparent musical talents, even from a young age. He did everything he could to direct young George into a law career. One sweet story tells us that Handel's mother helped the young boy carry up and install a small clavichord in their attic and encouraged the boy to practice when his father was asleep. His talent didn't go unnoticed for long. While attending the court of the Duke of Saxe-Wessenfels with his father, the nine-year-old George went to the organ and started playing. The Duke was very impressed by the musical talent of the young boy and insisted that his father take his musical inclination seriously and hire a professional music teacher. Begrudgingly, Georg did just that when the family returned to Halle. Church organist Friedrich Wilhelm Sackau started with his young pupil, first teaching him in the old-school tradition of fugues, canons, and counterpoint. But Zakow was also following musical developments in Europe and started to introduce George to different musical styles, and they moved beyond the organ. George learned to play the harpsichord, violin, and oboe as well. It was around this time, when George was 12 or 13, that his father died. 
George did try to continue on with the educational and career path that his father had desired for him and went to university to study law. But while in university, he was appointed organist at the Calvinist Cathedral, and it was soon apparent that George could no longer follow his late father's dreams and that music was his sole passion. He dropped out of university at the age of 18 to pursue his career in music. After being a church organist, he joined the Hamburg Orchestra as a violinist. It was around this time, too, that Handel formed a friendship that would last a lifetime despite both men being separated for most of it. While playing the church organ, Handel met Georg Philipp Telemann, and it was Telemann, a respected composer in his own right, who introduced Handel to Italian opera, and it was Italian opera that would forever change the direction that Handel's music would take. It was also during this time that Handel started to compose operas. He wrote his first opera in seven days, followed only seven weeks later by his second opera. Things were going very well for the 20-year-old Handel, but he felt that he had hit a creative wall, as there was, at that time, no such thing as German opera. So it was only natural that he pack up and make his way to the home of opera, Italy. Thanks to a connection with the Medici family, Handel got work almost immediately in Rome, composing music for feasts and events. Then Handel exploded in popularity in Venice, which was incredibly important as Venice was the center of diplomacy at that time, which meant that dignitaries and representatives from all of the great families of Europe spent time there, and many made lucrative job offers to Handel, now just in his mid-twenties, asking him to be the court musician for their employers. One offer was better than the rest, and this offer saw Handel return to Germany, to Hanover this time, and there he negotiated a pretty revolutionary contract that would allow him a 12-month leave of absence to travel, and this was important for Handel because he wanted to keep seeing all that the musical world had to offer. It was during this leave of absence that Handel would make his most important journey yet, and that was to London, England. In early 1711, Handel debuted his first opera for London, Ronaldo, and it was a smashing success. Queen Anne granted Handel a royal pension, and everyone in London society begged Handel to stay, but he did keep true to his contract and returned to Hanover to fulfill his term there. There was another trip to England, and he returned once again to his posting in Hanover, but then, with the death of Queen Anne, Handel's two worlds finally united into one. Queen Anne died without an heir, despite 18 pregnancies and losses, and it was Handel's boss, the Elector of Hanover, that was chosen to become the next King of England, a man who we now know as King George I. Handel was released from his contract and moved to England in 1713 and was followed a year later when George I ascended to the throne. Handel worked hard to learn English, and on the 20th of February, 1727, George Friedrich Handel became a British citizen and he would stay there for the rest of his life. Handel established himself as a member of the highest English society and settled into a house on Brook Street, Mayfair, London. Very little is known about Handel's personal life. 
Most biographers agree that the man had zero interest in romance, that his passion was solely focused on music. He was described as steady, reliable, a workaholic, jovial, and a great dinner guest. He was just, well, normal. Perhaps it was his time in the port city of Hamburg or the influence of Venice, but Handel always kept abreast of the changing trends, and he recognized early the decline of popularity of Italian opera in London, well, the decline of opera in general, and in 1733 he spent some time in Oxford, and there he debuted a new work. It was not in Italian, it was in English, and it was not a dramatic stage show, it was a choral piece. He recognized this shift in audience, this new market for more pared-down shows, for English music, for English listeners. There was pressure put on him to produce the Italian operas in English. But with the complications aforementioned, the rising costs, etc., he produced his first oratorio in English, and it was called Esther. In 1741, he received the libretto, the text waiting to be set to music, written by the wealthy landowner and Christian fundamentalist Charles Jennings that would forever change Handel's life. This libretto was split into three parts. Part one tells of the coming of the Messiah. Part two is all about Christ's passion and resurrection. And part three is the divine vision of the world following Christ's death and resurrection. And it was simply called Messiah. Handel wrote the score in just 24 days. One musical scholar said that most modern musicians couldn't even just copy out by hand Handel's score in 24 days, let alone compose it. Handel didn't let Jennings know that he was going to debut Messiah in, quote, Britain's second city of culture, Dublin. But that is exactly what he did at the new music hall in Dublin at noon on April 13, 1742. It was an immediate and massive success. Jennings was enraged and a damaging feud went on between the men for years. And on top of this, Jennings didn't think that Handel's music did justice to his words. One year later, Handel set to debut Messiah in London and was expecting the same response as in Ireland just one year prior, but he was met with an overwhelming protest, with many in positions of power publicly denouncing this work as scandalous, a profanation of God's word and name. Throughout the next seven years, it was rarely performed, but in late 1749, Handel, ever the great networker, had a genius idea, and he approached the Board of Governors of the London Foundling Hospital and asked if he could perform his Messiah as a benefit concert for the struggling institution, and they jumped at this idea. The rest is, as they say, history, and we will go into this more a bit later. After the benefit concert on May 1st, 1750, Handel performed Messiah every year until his death. After periods of ill health and the slow decline into total blindness, George Frederick Handel died in his bed in his Brook Street home on the 14th of April, 1759, at the age of 74. Handel's Messiah is arguably the most popular and recognizable piece of choral music of all time. It has been heard by more people and in more places around the world than any other piece of music ever. It is played Christmas after Christmas by almost every major symphony orchestra, and most musicians and audiences will tell you that they enjoy it every time because it is infused with the energy of each performing group, which makes it different despite its familiarity. I will conclude this very long introduction with something said in the BBC documentary, Messiah at the Foundling Hospital, which is available on YouTube. One presenter said that Messiah isn't just a piece of music, 
It is a verb. It is a call to charity. They went on to explain that it single-handedly awoke the social conscience of a nation and enthusiastically demonstrated that art plus philanthropy can improve the world. Okay, so let's dig into the three things that we think you should know about this Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. So Lindsay, what is the first thing that we should know? The first thing that we think you should know is, well, what is an oratorio? An oratorio is sacred music sung in a concert setting by soloists and a choir. It has its roots in Catholic Rome, having become popular with the spiritual exercises of St. Philip Neri and his group, which aimed to keep troubled youth off the streets by bringing them into his oratory. It was the 1560s, and they would sing these songs of praise, songs based on biblical stories. By the 17th century, these sung biblical stories became more operatic, and the term oratorio took off. In the mid-17th century, oratorios were all the rage, with Scarlatti, another Friday Finishing School episode topic, dominating the genre, and his work inspired Handel. When Handel settled in England, he realized that the audience there was ready for this type of entertainment, and this coincided with their declining interest in opera and desire for music to be in their own language, in English. There was no shortage of material for the libretto, the text, which came from the stories of the Old Testament and the apocryphal books, which most middle-class Protestants would have been pretty familiar with at that time. So Handel took everything he loved about the Italian oratorio tradition and made it his own, but also modernized it. He moved the genre forward. What that means is he didn't necessarily tell a story in a strict sense. And this is most evident in Messiah, which isn't told like a story, but rather it is in the style of a Christian meditation, contemplations on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the world afterwards. Another interesting aspect of the Handel Oratorio, which truly became its own genre, is his emphasis on communal singing, i.e. singing by the whole choir versus individual expression, like in an aria. While he still used arias, he often used the entire choir to move the story forward or even to narrate things. Another notable characteristic of an oratorio is that while the themes and stories were almost exclusively sacred, they were meant for the concert stage, not for church, and they were to be sung by professional singers who, behind the scenes, might not have been living Christian lives, and this became extremely problematic when the Messiah was released in London. There was outrage over the fact that regular people, not a church choir, could sing about God. It must be remembered that this was an England that was just shaking off decades of Puritanism, a religion that rebuked all forms of pleasure, even most sacred music. This new genre really brought forth to the general public a glimpse into a world that they were usually denied, especially after decades of an Italian opera scene that had snob appeal and encouraged the upper classes to engage in highbrow snottiness, pretending that they could understand the language and the plot when in reality, most could barely translate a few words. This was God for the people. This was music in their own language and in concert halls, which made it far more affordable and accessible than the lavish operas. According to the Norton Anthology of Western Music, the British middle class felt a kinship to these biblical heroes who seemed to be able to vanquish their enemies and improve their lot as long as they had God on their side. Hmm, 
God for the people. I love that. <laughs> and you know what? I love that faith seemed to be such a motivator for Handel's music. Mm. Now, there is one account from one of Handel's servants who allegedly walked in on Handel while he was composing this exact Hallelujah chorus. And it was said that the servant found him weeping and that Handel told him, the servant, Quote, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself seated on his throne with his company of angels, end quote. And can't you hear that? Like, can't you see that as Mm -hmm. he is writing it? He's probably hearing it already in his mind. And it is so magnificent. Um, I just found that that anecdote so fun. Now, just sidestepping for a minute to the text of the Messiah, I was also reading an interesting story about how Charles Jennings, um, the man who you were talking about, wrote the lyrics for the Messiah, uh, and how it came about that, you know, he just, what, randomly wrote an oratorio text about the life of Jesus? (laughs) So I find it intriguing because the Messiah, even though it's about the life of Jesus, which is found in the New Testament Gospels, Most of the text for the Messiah is taken from the Old Testament. And why would that be? And I learned that at the time, Jennings wanted to, quote, do battle with a religious sect called the Deists, who uh, denied the reality of prophecy in the Bible. So Jennings wanted to prove that Jesus was, in fact, totally prefigured in the Old Testament prophecies. And as a result, he wrote the Messiah to do just that. And I was like, wow. Talk about making a strong case. (laughs) (laughs) But okay, let's move into the second thing that we should know about the Messiah, Lindsay. And so where does that take us now? Well, the second thing that we think you should know is the connection between Messiah and charity. I spoke briefly in the introduction about how Handel was known for his philanthropy, his efforts to help the poor, and his desire to aid struggling musicians. I'm not sure what exactly sparked this deep desire to give back, but it was a very big part of who Handel was. Some have suggested that it was his way of fighting back when, despite the public's absolute love of him, he was jokingly satirized as a fat, food-loving German. This facet of his personality proved to be not only very beneficial for the orphaned babies in London, but also for his own career when, in 1749, Handel decided to approach the Board of Governors at London's Foundling Hospital in order to suggest a benefit concert of Messiah in order to raise funds for the struggling orphanage. Founded in 1739 by sailor and philanthropist Thomas Coram, this institution was the first of its kind to take in newborn babies with no questions asked of its mothers, no judgment, no punishment. Up until this point, 1,000 babies were left to die every year in London by grief-stricken mothers who had no other options and no government assistance, because at that time, assistance was seen as somehow being supportive of these women's decisions to get pregnant outside of marriage. After campaigning nonstop for 17 years, trying to secure the support of the aristocracy in order to build his hospital, Coram finally succeeded, and this new hospital was built. Almost immediately, it was bursting at the seams. Every mission day, the day when they'd accept babies, 100 babies were brought, and there were only 20 new beds available. The costs rose as the children grew and needed food and education, and the hospital just couldn't keep up with the needs of the women of London. The first artist to reach out to help was painter William Hogarth. 
Hogarth famously painted realistic street scenes showing the effects of alcoholism, prostitution, and poverty, shocking awake the consciousness of the upper classes. He then donated several of his works to the hospital, and this drew crowds of people to see his paintings, which made the hospital into Britain's first public art gallery. Touring this foundling hospital became a social highlight, and attending a church service in the hospital's chapel was incredibly fashionable. It's where you'd go to see and be seen. Charity became cool, and this movement of art plus philanthropy gained traction. Handel, always again with his finger on the pulse of what's happening, saw his opportunity to do a musical good work and jumped at the chance to reintroduce his work Messiah to a British audience who, just six years earlier, protested this work, calling it blasphemous. He felt that he could get around their outrage now because Messiah would now be performed in the hospital chapel and not in a concert house, the proper home for a choral work of sacred texts. Tickets went on sale at all of the fashionable coffee houses in Georgian England, and it was almost an immediate sellout. In fact, they knew that the chapel was going to be so packed that they asked ladies to come without hoops in their skirts and men to leave their swords at home. It was a smashing success for both the hospital and for Handel. It single-handedly revived his career and reputation. Handel went on to host a charity concert for the hospital every year until his death. It is believed that 25,000 babies were saved due to Handel's Messiah. Okay, so first of all, the idea of the Foundling Hospital in the time and the context of history is so moving. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm so inspired and touched by Thomas Coram. I never knew about this and about the origins uh, and subsequent charity of the Foundling Hospitals. It's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. But going back now to Handel's benefit concert at the hospital, apparently it was this specific hallelujah chorus that was first performed as a part of a more direct, I guess you could say, program. I was reading that when Handel first approached the Foundling Hospital with this concert idea, he actually composed and planned to perform the Foundling Hospital anthem, which he wrote. And it started off, yeah, so it started off with a not-so-subtle appeal for charity (laughs) from these wealthy spectators with text adapted from Psalm 41 in the Bible, which is, Blessed are they that consider the poor and needy. They deliver the poor that crieth the fatherless. Handel then continues the anthem with music he borrows from some of his earlier works, like the funeral anthem for Queen Caroline, his oratorio Susanna, and he ends this first concert with a bang with the Hallelujah Chorus. And so it was after the success that you were talking about, Lindsay, with this first performance at the Foundling Hospital that Handel then continued to perform the whole Messiah every year as the benefit concert in and of itself. And he even, I was reading, he even gave the hospital a copy of the score in his will after he died Mm. so that the hospital could continue, I know, raising funds with this benefit even after his death. Do you know what I think is so interesting? You're just saying how he starts so boldly, right? Um, Just speaking of bold, (laughs) the motto of the Foundling Hospital was one word and it was in English. So it had Mm -hmm. the like the coat of arms or the crest, which had the Lamb of God. And then underneath it, it just said, help. That was it. Oh my gosh. I See, I got shivers. Yes, right? You said that. That's so profound. Yes. Mm. Oh my goodness. I do love, I, I love all of this talk about art plus 
philanthropy Mm -hmm. and two worlds colliding to truly try to help people in dire straits. And so, yeah, as a final note, I also do love how Handel seems to be of the work smart, not hard (laughs) mindset sometimes (laughs) in the way that he borrows music to write new music. Yes. And not just from his own earlier pieces, but also from other composers and contemporaries. So apparently he did this so much that one of his contemporaries, William Boyce, once commented that, quote, he takes other men's pebbles and polishes them into diamonds, end Mm. quote. And so clearly this was this is not an accusation that Handel didn't work hard because he he wrote the Messiah in 24 days after all. Mm -hmm. But just more of an appreciation, we'll say, on his creative composing hack of piecemealing a variety of sources together to create whole new masterpieces. Yeah, I read that no one was ever insulted, that they were genuinely, Mm -hmm. um, they took it as a compliment if Handel saw that your work was good enough that he could fit it into one of his pieces that truly, I know, right? I feel like that would never happen now. Although, I mean, we do samplings of music, right? But I feel like Mm -hmm. it's it's a different tone now and I'd have to all go through their copyright lawyers and (laughs) just be different. I was just going to say, I guess it does happen now, but way more legalistically than yeah, back at the time, it was just more of a of a street cred type yes. of thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and that brings us to the third thing that we should know. And so, Lindsay, what is the third thing that we need to know about Handel's Messiah? The third thing we think you should know is about its production today versus when it was first performed and the folklore behind the tradition of standing during the Hallelujah Chorus. When Messiah was debuted in Dublin on April 13, 1742, Handel used choirs from two local cathedrals for the occasion. He had 16 men and 16 boy choristers, with several of the men singing solos. Handel also hired two women, one soprano and one contralto. His orchestra was comprised of strings, two trumpets, and a timpani. His own organ was used, having been shipped from London to Ireland. Compared to the massive choirs and huge orchestras that perform Messiah today, this was a very small ensemble. One recording that you can listen to which is closest to this original arrangement is on YouTube, sung by the Dundin Consort and Players, and it is my favorite version. It sounds a lot like the other versions we all know and love, but just slightly smaller? The thing with Messiah is there is no definitive version. It has been updated, adapted, changed, and modified countless times over the centuries. Even Mozart himself made some changes. He added winds. This modernized it a bit, making it more suitable for the post-Baroque classical style. But he humbly wrote that his changes shouldn't be seen as an improvement at all. Mozart is also quoted as saying, Handel knows better than any of what will make an effect. When he chooses, he strikes like a thunderbolt. Look up Handel's Messiah and you will be overwhelmed by all of the articles by countless musical experts all talking about how they think it should be done. However, it is clear that one of the most popular ways to perform it now involves a massive amount of performers. Well, that being said, the massive Messiah performances aren't as new as I had originally thought. They started around the 1760s and at one point found their home in London's Crystal Palace, which held anywhere from 2,500 to 4,000 amateur singers and an orchestra of 500 performing for audiences of 20,000. 
Another concert held in London in 2011 featured 750 singers, and yet another in 2017, at 360 plus an additional 2,000 joining virtually for an online sing-along. It's hard to imagine the Alleluia Chorus being sung by a small choir. A song of that magnitude calls for a large choir, and a large choir belting out this rousing chorus was said to have inspired King George II to rise from his seat and stand during the song, watching the choir in awe. Now this legend has endured despite the lack of evidence, with the first official telling of the story happening 37 years after the fact. It has endured so much so that to this very day, the audience stands during the Alleluia Chorus. Well, most of the audience. This action has long been a bone of contention between the few who refuse to stand in honor of God or in memory of a king and the people who want to honor tradition, God, and country. It is said that dirty looks are passed between those standing and those sitting while the Alleluia Chorus continues to blow the roof off of concert halls. The website bsomusic.org describes this as, quote, countless passive-aggressive battles of concert decorum between the sitters and standers, end quote. Now be aware, this is an American custom. You will not find people standing in England and Europe during the Hallelujah Chorus. Some who hate this tradition try to explain away King George's sudden standing, blaming his bladder or back pain, or perhaps he was confused, thinking it was the intermission. I turn now to the website boston.com to an article in their archives titled Rise and Say Alleluia, and in this one, the author wrote, Perhaps the custom persists precisely because no one is sure why it exists, leaving every audience member to choose his or her own rationale. Royal example, religious devotion, reassuring ritual, rousing musicality. Take your pick or don't. Remaining seated during the Alleluia Chorus ranks as one of the most effortless demonstrations of anti-authoritarian dissent. Whew, what a mouthful that one was. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you know that, but you'll edit it out. But our listeners won't know just how hard it was for me to read that quote. (laughs) Oh my goodness, anti-authoritarian dissent. My goodness. Okay, but I have to confess that I'm kind of loving all of this drama. (laughs) Like you and I have a definite flair for the dramatic, right, Lindsay? And I feel like all this drama is really playing into my hand here. So yeah, I have to say, I think that if I were to pick a version of the Messiah to listen to just on my own or at home, I would probably prefer the smaller, original, and slightly more subdued version. Yes, I do like that one a lot, but if I'm going to see a live performance of Messiah and I fully plan to at the first available opportunity, Mm -hmm. I want it to be the biggest, most massive, most dramatic rendition it could possibly be. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even these passive aggressive, dirty looks between the audience (laughs) members and the King George debate and whether to stand or not... All of it would just add to the experience of it to me. Mm, Um, For the record, I would totally stand. Yes. Because I could see myself being overcome with all of those things that that article mentions. Royal example, check. Religious devotion, check. Reassuring ritual, double check. Love that. (laughs) Rousing musicality, check, check, check. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no mystery here as to which side I'd be on. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was wondering, 
could it be though because we're Canadian mm. uh, that I would jump right on board with this example of the king? Mm-hmm. And then I found it interesting that the standing would occur in America yes. of all places and not necessarily Europe. Yes. So just as a thought experiment, and our American listeners will have to excuse this Canadian girl's poor attempt at historical connect the dots. <laughs> But I looked up when the American Revolution took place, Mm -hmm. and it was fought between 1775 and 1783. Mm -hmm. Now, Handel's Messiah was first performed, as you said, in Dublin in 1742. So that's a few decades before the war. Yeah. But the first performance of the Messiah in America took place in New York City in the year 1770, Mm -hmm. just five years before the American Revolution began. So with a growing sense of dislike of British overreach in the American colonies starting in in 1765, it makes sense that by the time the Messiah reached America, this tradition of standing as the British King George did during the Hallelujah Chorus may have truly been a loaded act and a powerful, as you quoted, Lindsay, demonstration of anti-authoritarian dissent. Mm -hmm. So can you just imagine declaring your position in an increasingly heated political controversy at a performance of an oratorio originally (laughs) meant to inspire Christian meditation Mm -hmm. and devotion? I just, I loved all of these like connections and rabbit holes. (laughs) And you saying that because when I was first reading, I'm like, do people really give each other dirty looks? Like that's in the notes, right? You like, you read any of these accounts of the performances to this day and they say that this happens and I can see it now as being playful, right? Like little dirty looks, like everyone's in on the joke. And so Mm -hmm. I can actually see it happening now as Canadians. I don't know if we, I think we would stand, but we would just keep our eyes straight ahead. We wouldn't want to start a conflict with anybody. So we would stand, we would be as (laughs) passive aggressive as possible and not actually look at each other. That's right. Or if we were to look at people sitting, both of us, the stander and the sitter, would be like pointing at each other and giggling. Yeah. yeah. You, really? Okay. We'd be like, oh, sorry about that. Sorry about that. (laughs) Sorry. I'm just going to stand. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to stand. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So, Michelle, tis the season of giving, and I kind of have a fourth. Um, thing we think they should know that's a little unofficial, Mm. but I wanted to know how it became associated with Christmas because it was written by Handel to be a Lenten song. And in Europe, it's still mostly played throughout uh, Lent, but it is a North American tradition to play the Messiah at Christmas. Well, in 1815, the Handel and Haydn Society was formed in Boston. At first, it was just a small group singing church hymns, but as more people joined and as their skills improved, the society planned to host a concert on Christmas Day in order to showcase their talent, and they chose the Alleluia Chorus from Messiah as the perfect vehicle for this. So, on Christmas Day, 1818, a new American tradition was born when the Handel and Haydn Society performed Messiah in full. And then I learned something like it's like at least 80% of the major symphony orchestras perform it every Christmas. And I looked into this year, uh, the big five, they're called the big five orchestras in the United States. And I went on all of their websites and 
four out of the five definitely had it on their schedule and the Cleveland orchestra, they probably did, but they canceled everything due to the current pandemic. Mm. And it does, it was just harder to navigate their December schedule. Um, But Mm. the big five are the New York Philharmonic, Boston Symphony Orchestra, the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Cleveland Orchestra, and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And so, yes, the other four very clearly had the Messiah scheduled Mm. to be as part of their regular rotation. I do love that the majority of the orchestras are still trying to do it. Mm -hmm. Like, it just kind of adds even more to the legacy that this Messiah from Handel endures, Mm -hmm. like over centuries through pandemics, like (laughs) nothing can hold this hallelujah chorus down. That's right. We're going to be belting it out. And it kind of, you know what, it's kind of synonymous with what we're all kind of feeling right now too, Mm -hmm. like trying to make it through to Christmas, right? That no matter what, um, it's a metaphor that it's going to come and we're going to still celebrate exactly what Christmas is about, the reason for the season. And just like these orchestras that are just digging their heels in and getting the Messiah out, come what may, mm-hmm. we will celebrate Christmas too, come what may. And so now it's your turn. Here is your homework. If you haven't already, please find a version of Handel's Messiah to listen to and enjoy. Next, tell us what you think in the comment section or on any of our social media pages where you can find us at The Modern Lady Podcast. And finally, be sure to share this piece and your newfound appreciation for it in your little corner of the world. That concludes today's lesson here at The Modern Lady's Friday Finishing School. On behalf of Lindsay and I, we want to thank you so much for your support, and we want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. We'll see you again soon. Class dismissed. <laughs>